This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Politicians, it could be said, would have a much easier time of it. It doesn't have to go around worrying about what the voters think about everything constantly. So what is on the nation's mind? Who is up and who is down? And in these extraordinary times, what impact does a change in public opinion have potentially on public health? Joining me on this episode, I've assembled whatever the collective noun is for pollsters to pick through what the surveys and focus groups are saying and to discuss what the politicians should do as a result. Deborah Matteson was Gordon Brown's pollster before setting up insight firm Britain Thinks. James Johnson was Theresa May's pollster before setting up polling firm JL Partners. And Chris Curtis is research manager at YouGov, which fields endless questions from me every week, asking, can we ask this or that or the other about what's happening in the public mood? Before we begin... um. Anyone got any thoughts on what the collective noun for pollsters should be? I was thinking maybe a confidence, a surge, a slump. Any other ideas? A significance or Uh, maybe an insignificance. (laughs) Yes. Chris, you before we started recording, you had quite a good suggestion. People obviously mean about pollsters sometimes and claim that we heard. So I suppose a herd of pollsters would be a, a fairly mean way of describing us. But also, yes, I said, you know, in better times, you could say somewhere between one and five pollsters walked into the bar. It may be free, but it, there's also a margin of error on that. <laughs> <If only. laughs> and there are no bars. And there are no, no bars. So it doesn't count anymore. Let's get stuck into what's actually happening in sort of the mind of the nation. Early on in the coronavirus crisis, particularly when the lockdown came in, the government was riding high in the polls, remarkable levels of support. But in the last few days or week or so, that seems to have shifted. Chris, why don't you kick us off because the times partners with you go for polling so i've sort of become slightly obsessed with what's happening in your trackers chris just explain to us what you polls are showing so we've sort of had two trackers that we've asked fairly consistently throughout this crisis the first is do you think the government are doing good or bad on the issue of coronavirus and then this general tracker that we've been running basically for 20 years which is do you th- approve or disapprove of what the government's doing generally and on both of those in this past week we have seen a drop-off Um, for the government. And it's basically their numbers kind of returning back to what you'd normally expect to see in general political circumstances. So at the start of this crisis, there was this massive surge. Everyone said the government was doing great. The British public approved of the government for the first time in nearly a decade. And now things are broadly 
returning back to normal. You've written for us, I think, about this this idea of the rally round the flag effect. Just mm. explain to me what that means. So at the start of a crisis, almost all crisis, and we've got polling for tons of these things to prove this point, 9-11 being a good example, the Falklands War, even the financial crash in 2008 to a certain extent. At the start of a crisis, approval ratings for the government almost always shoot up. And that's kind of because people who are normally politically opposed to the government of the day, don't vote for them, don't like their politics, feel the need to rally behind them, you know, in a sense of um, national unity. And also because there's less political criticism coming from opposition parties in the media at the start of the crisis. And again, as that crisis goes on, that starts to return back to normal. And that's pretty much what we've been seeing happening over the past week. Can I just add an interesting um, aside there, which I think it isn't rallying around the flag. And I think that's quite important because I'm not sure that that would have been able to unite the nation in the way that we've seen. I think it was rallying around the NHS. That is a way that you can bring people together, whereas rallying around the flag might not have worked so well. That's interesting. And of course, the, the public reaction to the NHS is always as extraordinary. And the the fact that it is sort of treated as a sort of semi-religious body, you know, immune from criticism. So do you think that actually that when the people were said the government was doing well, what they actually were doing was sort of wishing the NHS well? Yes. And I mean, it's, you know, in a way, it, it isn't terribly British, is it, to stand on our doorsteps on, you know, at eight o'clock on a Thursday evening and bang saucepans and cheer and play musical instruments and do all the things that we're doing. But it has become like a religion. In a way, it always has been. You know, if you've asked people historically, you know, what are you most proud of in this country, they will often say the NHS and they've done that for years. But yes, I think now it's, it's given this, there's this sort of almost religious fervour about it what makes that rally around the flag or rally around the NHS effect so sort of interesting in the UK is it was actually much greater in the UK than in, in a lot of other countries. Um, we saw it in other places, but actually in the US, you know, party divides, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, still had a big influence in countries like Sweden and Germany. The populist parties were, had quite different views um, uh, as opposed to the governing ones. I think what we're seeing now as we see this effect unwind in the UK is actually, you know, a very comparatively large effect, um, you know, come back to normal. And is that because the going into the lockdown was relatively straightforward? Everyone could see this was a crisis, something must be done, a nice clean thing to do was to shut the country down. Uh, but now the process of coming out of that is a bit more complicated, is a bit more nuanced, there are different things that you could do at different times, you've got different things happening in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, which we talked about on the podcast last week. And so different opinion then starts feeding into it. One of the, I thought one of the really striking things was, I think some of the YouGov part of it was repeated across the board, I think, last week, was that people said they opposed Boris Johnson's decision to ease the lockdown, but on the individual measures, they supported them. So things like opening up garden centres or taking unlimited exercise and that sort of thing. And so partly because there was this idea that it was a confused message. Um, and actually, this idea of it being confused meant that people who didn't like Boris Johnson don't like the Tories. It's a sort of stick to beat them with. Is that all playing into it as well, do you think? But I think some people who do like him as well were very worried by that. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you place so much importance on the message and put it centre stage, then you are judged by the message. Because as you say, certainly what we found, I think it's borne out by all the polling as well, is that people favoured the individual measures, but were very concerned about the way the message came together or, or rather didn't come together. And in a situation where people feel, they personally feel a bit out of control, they feel very anxious 
then if, if it feels like government is out of control as well, that's incredibly worrying. And I think that's sort of where we were starting to get to. People were quite reassured when they thought they were in safe hands and then suddenly thought, oh, blimey, this is a bit of a dog's yeah. breakfast that we're being yeah. served up here. And, yeah. and I think I've noticed that I've noticed sort of number 10, the government sort of, you know, trying to get it out there in the press at this point about, you know, that YouGov poll showing that the individual measures were quite were quite popular. That takes me back to, uh, to being uh, in the in 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 the cabinet room, telling the cabinet after the checkers agreement was struck. Look, guys, it's okay because the individual measures are actually quite popular, and obviously that didn't matter a dime because actually you know the brand of that deal overall was already set by you know Boris Johnson, David Davis resigning over that weekend. I think we see a similar thing here. You know the way that Boris Johnson's video message landed on that Sunday evening, um, and you know the confusion and the messaging and and, and the you know the follow-up interviews after that set the view of, the, of of that policy package. Whereas actually, you know, if presented in a different way, it could well have um, have have had broad public support. I suppose what's really critical about this is this is not just sort of selling some government policy or you know even trying to win votes. The the impact of the way that the public views what the government is doing and the message they communicate has a big impact on public health. I think this is a, a, a real difference in this particular crisis with other crises, you know, financial crisis or, 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 you know, people can actually, people often say, I don't get the difference that politics makes to my life. But in this instance, they can really see that and they feel it's life or death. You know, it really matters. This isn't a joke. It isn't a, a game. It isn't something abstract. This is something that really affects We've been doing at Britain Thinks this exercise, the coronavirus diaries. We've had 50 people from different sorts of walks of life keeping diaries every week. And, you know, what we saw was that initially they were quite sort of stoical and quite calm and so on. And then quite quickly, people could see how it actually affected them. Everybody knew somebody that had it. Everybody knew somebody who knew somebody who had died. And it started to really hit home. And I think that's the difference. There aren't many political events that have that kind of personal resonance. Deborah, how does that work in practice, just in practical terms? Are they writing them like literally in diaries? Do they do them electronically? How are you collating all of that? So uh, most are doing them, sending them back to us electronically. There are a few, we, we wanted to get a really good cross section. So we have some people that wouldn't be able to do that. So they're, you know, they're, they're, they're telephoning them in to us. But we send people some questions we want them to answer, but we leave them very open. The point about the diary exercise is that you know, you get what people feel without framing it with your own questions, which often then will make something shoot to prominence that, you know, that it might, people might not have been thinking about at all. So we're getting their really instinctive feelings and responses to the crisis. And to what extent do they see this crisis as as one of politics? Because obviously, if there's a polling question which says, how is the government handling coronavirus? It forces it into being a political question. But do people see it as a as a political issue? So I think people were really determined not to see it as a political issue. We've been running the exercise for six weeks now. And in the last couple of weeks, we've reached the point where politics has suddenly come back. But up until then, people were almost determined not to take take a political story out of that, whatever their own personal politics. There was this thing of, you know, rallying, rallying together, coming together. They wanted, it was quite a remarkable sense of unity, I think. But now people suddenly are starting to feel, hang on a minute. And I think that's coincided with a feeling that, well, with question marks about, um, you know, Boris Johnson and his government, also a return of opposition 
you know, we haven't really seen proper opposition in this country for quite a while. And suddenly we're seeing it. I think initially it was quite hard for Keir Starmer to establish himself against the backdrop of that unity and anything he said that looked critical was going to be problematic. But his demeanour has made that work. Um, and I think that, you know, he, he's starting to be noticed by people. Well, you, you've teed that up perfectly for me to to move on to what is actually happening, Boris Johnson versus Keir Starmer. We'll discuss that after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast with me, Matt Jolly, joined by Deborah Mattinson, James Johnson and Chris Curtis. Let's get stuck into the politics then. Let's talk about uh, Boris Johnson. Um, Chris, just talk us through what is happening to Boris Johnson's personal ratings in this crisis. It's pretty much mirroring what we're seeing with the government. So big surge at the start of the crisis, rally around the flag, return back to normal now. And again, biggest drop off has happened over the last week and the sort of general chaos and mess we've seen. Part of that is obviously all of the stuff that's gone wrong over the past week. And part of that is you basically couldn't land the crit- any criticisms on Boris personally when he was in hospital or recovering from an illness. Now it's sort of started to return back to normal. It's easier to for the leader of the opposition to sort of land these blows on him as we saw happen in Prime Minister's questions last week, for example. And in the most recent YouGov poll, the net favourability, so that's the all the people who are favourable towards someone, minus the unfavourable. Boris Johnson is on plus seven. Uh, Keir Starmer is on plus nine. So uh, Labour people can get very excited that Keir Starmer has overtaken Boris Johnson. It is worth pointing out that a Prime Minister at any time being in positive figures is unusual. Uh, for it to be in the middle of a crisis is probably perhaps even more so. And it is also worth pointing out that there's only 8% of people who don't have a view on the Prime Minister, but a third of people don't have a view at all on... Keir Starmer. So he's sort of benefiting from the fact that of the people who know about him, slightly more are positive than negative. If you'll allow me to be really nerdy for a second, Matt. Of course. I've I mean, spent, this, uh, is a, this is a safe space for nerds, Chris. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how you can really compare the popularity of two politicians who have different levels of awareness. Do you do net favourability, like you just said, which is the number who say favourable, subtract the number who say unfavourable? Do you just compare the two favourable numbers? Do you do some weird sort of uh, more complicated sum? And I've basically come to the conclusion that it's very difficult to compare two politicians 
like Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer at this stage anyway. We're just going to have to wait for more of the public to get to know Keir Starmer, and then we'll have an accurate comparison between the two. At this stage, I think all we can say really is that Keir Starmer's numbers are very good for new opposition leaders. Boris Johnson's are also very good for a prime minister at that stage. So we have these two politicians who are fairly popular by sort of recent modern comparisons. Britain thinks we've done quite a lot of work about leadership and what people value in leaders of different sorts. And I I think there is a thing of sort of different leadership styles for different times. Boris Johnson's leadership style was absolutely right, you know, from the middle end of last year. You know, he's very kind of gung-ho, rallying everybody together since, you know, even if it was a bit of bluster and so on, and even though he did divide people a bit, in the end, it felt like the right type of leadership, I think, to people. Whereas now I just wonder, you know, you have a situation where people are feeling they can't cope with the situation. You've got three out of 10 people in our polling saying they're not coping, 42% of younger people, many more women, feeling that the whole situation is out of control. Maybe they're looking for something calmer and more measured and that's quite hard for Boris Johnson to pull off I think. I, I think we're going to be careful not to exaggerate this though I mean you know as, as Chris says you know this is a return to normal and actually um, government approval for most of the 2010s was in negative territory and you know we're seeing actually a relatively good position still for the government now you know that could that could yet change but you know we're in this sort of strange world at the moment where we're going back to people getting just a little bit too overexcited you know when there's a new opinion poll that shows the Conservatives down two points you get all of the sort of uh, Labour supporters in enthusiastically and happily retweeting it, even though the Conservatives are down two points to 50%. Um, (laughs) So I think we have to be a little bit careful. I totally agree. I mean, you know, the difference between plus seven and plus nine, obviously, it's not something to get excited about. But I think just looking at the sorts of things people are saying about them both is is the thing that makes me feel something is changing. The other interesting thing in the in the YouGov poll that you mentioned there, um, Matt, is actually what some people think about the other um, key political players in this. So, you know, Keir Starmer on plus nine, Boris Johnson on plus seven, Rishi Sunak Rishi is on plus Sunak. 35, yeah. you know, you know, which is really striking. And then somehow Pretty Pretty Patel. Patel is on minus 34. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's some interesting stories coming about these other figures as well. Two, two other quick points on that. The first is, that because we're in these strange times where we have two popular politicians, yes, Boris Johnson's going down, Keir Starmer's going up, but broadly speaking, two popular politicians. What that does mean for the first time in ages is that we have a big chunk of the population who have a favourable view of both the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition. And basically, the reason the Conservatives are still holding on to their massive poll lead at the moment is because those that have a favourable view of both are sticking with the governing party. I think that's that's basically the reason why you know Keir Starmer's fairly good ratings aren't translating into a, a big increase in, in Labour's polling at the moment. One thing I want to just quickly t- touch on with Boris Johnson. The other day, I tweeted out a poll, possibly a YouGov one, but which showed that more than half of people thought the PM was doing a good job. Uh, and and lo- and I pointed out that the problem is that lots of people who don't like him just can't understand this. Listener Alan Simpson got in touch to say basically he was one of those people left slightly unable to understand why people thought Boris Johnson was doing a good job, but would like to. I don't know who wants to try and explain the appeal of Boris Johnson. 
<laughs> I think you asked that question because you knew you were going to get that reaction, Matt. Well, that is part of the problem, isn't it? The, the people who don't like Boris Johnson so viscerally dislike everything about him, the the scruffed hair act, the, you know, quoting Latin, the larking about, the, you know, you know breaking all the rules as they see it, the not taking things seriously. But they, they dislike that so much they just can't understand anyone having a different view I, I, I can have a I can have a go I've been doing quite a lot of focus groups and interviews in red wall constituencies because I'm writing this book about the red wall he is one of the reasons that a lot of lifelong Labour voters voted Tory and felt able to vote Tory for the first time in December and it is absolutely about him rather than the Tory party one one I remember one woman in the Heinburn constituency saying to me he de-snobbified the Tory party. Wow. And there's something about him that he has this sort of authenticity, the fact that he's willing to make a bit of a fool of himself. You know, everybody has that image of him with the flags and the, you know, on the because he's able to do that and willing to do that, people feel that he's very genuine. They feel that he he cares, they feel that he's approachable, and they feel that he's very patriotic. And there are a lot of things about him that enabled them, those lifelong Labour voters, to vote Tory for the first time. And is there a challenge there for for the Labour Party if it's going to come back in those places? And obviously, you know, assuming the election is not for another four years, but they need to understand, if not appreciate or agree with that point of view, but they need to at least understand where people are coming from. They can't just just keep trying to dismiss Boris Johnson's sort of out of touch toff. Uh, the old Etonian attack that some on the left like to use, that, that's clearly not going to work if people have come to the idea that Boris Johnson detoffed the Tory party. I, I think that's right. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind that all politicians are toffs, basically. You know, if, if you're a care <laughs> worker, well, you know, if you're a yeah. care worker in Stoke-on-Trent and you look at the way that people live their lives in London... It's very, very different. And all politicians, whether you're Keir Starmer or whether you're Boris Johnson, I mean, you or I might see some nuanced differences between them, but actually they seem pretty much the same. James, you, your piece about, what was it, 88% of people have never hired a cleaner, for example. I think it's very easy for people in the Westminster bubble to completely lose sight of how different their lives are from most people in yeah. this country. I just come on that point about Boris Johnson and, and how that relates to Keir Starmer. I mean, Deborah's absolutely right. And I did focus groups, I'm sure, in very similar places um, to Deborah in January. I did some in Darlington and, you know, person after person said, you know, he's one of us. You know, Boris is one of us, um, as they described why they voted for the Conservatives in December. The reason is auth- it's authenticity, it's character, it's strength. Um, you know, people think he's this sort of very authentic politician. They're sick of sort of seeing, you know, the sort of prepackaged politician. The really interesting thing about this crisis will be whether that actually changes that desire. Do people actually still want that, you know, the sort of authentic, you know, gung-ho, yeah. you know, might not be, it might not be, you know, perfect around the edges, but, you know, he does what he says or, you know, whatever else it might be. Or do they actually want this sort of more competent manager figure? And I think that's the key question. And the, how that question yeah. is answered depends yeah. on, on Keir Starmer's fortunes. I mean, just one more thing on that. Uh, you know, when I tested Keir Starmer alongside all the Labour leadership contenders for focus groups for Channel 4 at the start of the year, and Keir Starmer actually didn't do very well because it was exactly that. You know, he was sort of like the manager, you know, the, the sort of corporate politician. Maybe, maybe this coronavirus crisis will change that. Well, it's back to this different leadership styles for different times. I think that it's always been the case that people look for different approaches you know, to match the, the, the moment that we're in. I think the other interesting thing as well is how it, it, you've obviously got the views of the party leaders, but how that cuts across the views of the parties as well. Because 
normally it's the conservative party it's the conservative brands that's associated with competence and being able to run things well and it's the labor party brand that's associated with being in touch with the concerns of ordinary people now if what we're saying potentially coming out of this crisis is that Keir Starmer is going to be the competent one whereas Boris Johnson's going to be seen maybe as the more in touch one you know maybe not how are people going to be able to square that the fact that the party leaders have a different brand to the parties underneath them I think it'd be interesting to see I'd like to challenge you're normally, uh, you know, the Tory party is the competent party and the managerial party and normally the Labour Labour party isn't because I think working as I did with Labour, new Labour in the run up to the 97 election and then all the way through the Labour government, I would think that Labour at that point and for a very long time was seen, it was almost its problem actually that it became too managerial um, and, you know, not not driven enough by, by values and passion. And it then obviously totally went the other way in the Corbyn era. But I think that taking a longer view, that's not always been the case. But the Labour Party has to battle a lot harder than the Conservative Party to make itself be seen as the the, the, the competent party. And, and that's a big part of what New Labour was. It was that fierce battle they had to do exactly. to reclaim that mantle. Um, yeah. And I think it'd be yeah. interesting that Keir Starmer is obviously, I think, you know, all of the early data we've seen, all of the early qual and quant that has been done, has started to show that Keir Starmer can be perceived as a competent competent managerial person. If he can hold that, are people willing to say, well, yeah, Keir Starmer might be able to do that, but he's still got the Labour Party behind them and they're still the, you know, the people who are associated with, you know, spending too much money and all of those problems that the Labour Party brand has. Or is he and going of course, to be able Boris to Johnson brand? has it the other way around, doesn't he? Because, you know, if, if we're all worshipping the NHS, our diarists telling us they want to see us emerging from this in a better place. And that definitely doesn't mean less spending on the NHS you know, definitely doesn't mean austerity to them. And it'll be very interesting. He's got the opposite problem, hasn't he, where he's, you know, he is wanting to uh, appease the nation in terms of what they're looking for, but his party are the other way around. And he's got that challenge with coming out of lockdown as well. One of the uh, unexpected impacts of this uh, crisis and the fact we're having these daily press conferences is that the, the public, you know, because we've lots of people frankly have nothing else better to do at five o'clock sit down and watch the press conference and so have come to see members of the cabinet you know the community secretary or the the transport secretary who, who maybe they, they haven't really they wouldn't normally have come across and they're forming views about them that you know three quarters of the public do have a view on Dominic Raab and Matt Hancock and Pretty Patel in a way they might not have done before but as a result do you think that it's interesting that Rishi Sunak's popularity has gone up because he he's the one who gets to announce all the billions of pounds of extra money and carry on pay, paying people's wages. And Matt Hancock's personal wages have gone down. Maybe he's acting as a lightning rod for problems with what's happening in the NHS. It, does that sort of shield Boris Johnson by sort of broadening the team, if you like? The good and the bad get shared out a bit more and he's the sort of the chairman of the board, if you like. I should think that Boris Johnson is, is a bit fed up, actually, that, that Rishi Sunak is, is taking all the credit. <laughs> I mean, he's doing incredibly well, isn't he? But yes, at the same time, you know, he'll be very pleased that Matt Hancock is 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 mopping up quite a lot of the problems with the NHS and PPE and care homes and, and all of that, which are still very much in people's minds. I mean, people are talking about that still all the time. Yeah, and I think it's clear that Boris Johnson, you know, at the start of this crisis was taking that press conference 
almost all the time. Um, obviously, he's been ill, and that's clearly one of the reasons he hasn't hasn't recently. But actually, even in the last couple of weeks, you know, since he's been back, I think he's done one or two. Um, so you know, there's definitely um, there's definitely a sort of a, pat- a pattern there. One thing on the on the Rishi Sunak thing I'll mention is that you know don't assume that that positive rating will will be here to stay. I mean, one of the really sort of um, big difficulties I think coming up for the government with the public is that that whatever it takes press conference that Rishi Sunak did, where you know he said you know don't worry, you know we will protect your jobs, you know we will protect these businesses people really sort of took that message and sort of you know really really internalized that i think that shows why his approval ratings are so high the result is that lots of employees and lots of businesses now view this as an economic pause and actually think that you know the government's got their back they believe it now that's a great success of political messaging but actually if we do end up seeing you know big redundancies the unemployment figures um today are clearly clearly very bad then that could well actually unwind and people could turn around and say you told me it was going to be whatever it takes. What went wrong? Yeah. One one separate but related point to the point you've just made, actually, is about Boris Johnson. One thing I'm seeing from our diarist responses is, is a growing sense that he's a bit invisible, actually. And they hadn't expected that. Now, they know he was ill. They cut him a bit, you know, and then he had a baby. and They know all of that. But actually, they really are expecting him, I think, to be a bit more centre stage than he is. Yeah, rather than farming out cabinet ministers to yeah. to field to field the questions and that sort of thing. I mean, one of the for me, one of the striking things about Sunak's personal ratings is the way they have gone up and down. So they sort of shot up it, whatever it takes. Then they sort of levelled off a bit, and then they dropped when the economy started looking a bit wobbly, and there was talk of the of some of the schemes coming to an end and the deep cuts that were going to come. And then last week he announces furloughs extended, billions of pounds more, and he bumps up again. And you're right that eventually the the bad stuff is going to outweigh the good news, and you can't keep spending money forever. And just finally, before we wrap up, when people are looking at voting intention, oh, you know, Labour, Tory, Lib Dems, where are they in the polls? Is there any point to them at this stage? Is there any point to them at this stage in a Parliament generally? because we're years away from a general election. And in the middle of a crisis like this, should we get too excited about them? Or is the sort of qualitative stuff and the the way that people are being perceived, is that more important at this stage? I think it's still important. I mean, it's it's one of those things, ultimately, it's the most important measure. I mean, you know, if you're a, a if you're Argos, for example, your sales figures are the most important number that you have. Um, now, at the moment, you can be going, oh, we're in the middle of a crisis, it'll bounce back. So, you know, the sales figures have gone down, you know, you can you can caveat them and explain them, but they're still the most important figure. And I think that's the way we need to see voting intention. It's the most important way of judging the government and where all of the parties are. Yes, it can change. Yes, we have to explain the situation. But even at a point like this, it's important to track it and look at the effects that things are having on it, why it's moving about, even if it's probably a pretty poor indication of where we're going to be in four years time. I would say two things on that. I think the first thing is that, uh, um, you know, just focus groups and the, and the power of the qualitative work is, is absolutely key in a moment in times like this. You know, you can actually get a great deal um, of value out of those, you know, sort of tracking what the public are actually saying, you know, how they're speaking about it, how they're feeling. The second thing I'd say is, I mean, this is probably heresy coming from a pollster, but is, um, you know, there are actually a lot of limitations to what the polls can tell us at this point. Um, On a lot of these questions that are so key, you know, whether it's, um, you know, what do you want to see afterwards or whether how is your behaviour going to change? You know, people are making these decisions, making these, um, answering these questions um, in the midst of, um, you know, the worst sort of um, part of the, or what we hope is the worst part of the, um, the, the, the outbreak. So, you know, we have to always sort of, you know, caveat these things. We can't use polling uh, to predict uh, all the time, um, but even more so now we have to be doubly careful. 
Yeah, and I think history tells us that too, doesn't it? If you look at, for instance, what happened with polling and, and individual politicians' ratings through the financial crisis, for example, it actually will look quite good for, for Gordon Brown for a while, but we know what happened after that. I think similarly at that time, and, and we're seeing it now for different reasons, the opposition to a certain extent had taken their gloves off. I mean, it might not feel like that of your Boris Johnson standing opposite um, Keir Starmer at the dispatch box, but actually he's being very measured, he's playing it very carefully. That not always going to be the case. Just finally then, Deborah and James, you've literally done this. You've been in Downing Street advising Prime Ministers at, at fraught moments. Um, uh, uh, Chris, you, you spend a lot of time digging into the polls. So imagine you had a couple of minutes to bend Boris Johnson's ear. What would you be advising him to do right now? Let's start with you, Deborah. Gosh, I mean, I think he is obviously listening to the polls, isn't it? But I, I, I think that he needs to be looking forward a little bit. I think that he needs to make it clearer that he has a plan going forward. And I think, you know, any amount of messaging won't make up for poor policy. And I think in, in the end, that's where he came unstuck a couple of weeks ago. So I think he needs to do more planning and thinking um, and less putting out headlines. James, you were there doing the same job for Theresa May only 12 months ago. What, what would you be advising Boris Johnson there? Yeah, so I was giving uh, much uh, more gloomy uh, advice uh, 12 months ago than I probably would be now. Um, uh, and uh, no, I think um, I think I would agree with Deborah that you know the sort of um, the sort of forward forward planning point is key in terms of you know what does this look like. The other thing I'd say is just get it is you know from a purely political perspective um, is you know getting ahead of the curve on setting out what the future looks like after this crisis. And I think I saw a little bit in some of the Sunday papers about how um, you know uh, the Conservative are potentially planning a, a Boris Johnson speech on what the future looks like. But Deborah is absolutely right that, you know, this is where the attention is going to turn to. It's a bit like after the Second World War. You know, nobody, you know, the war was won. People wanted exactly. to instead focus on the peace. And who defines that peace is really going to be um, who, who, who goes forward. Now, on paper, you know, um, there's a focus on um, some polling I did with Keck CNC showed that, you know, people wanted the most vulnerable to be looked after more. They wanted key workers to be focused on more. On paper, those look like Labour things. But remember, the Conservatives won on that turf in December. So, you know, it is up for grabs. And whoever defines that future, whoever defines the piece, likely wins it. Yeah, and people are thinking about that now. Voters are thinking about it right now. Finally, Chris, what would you tell the PM? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, uh, James's point just there. The Conservatives have a bigger opportunity than they probably ever have had before as cementing themselves as the party of the NHS. If they can come out of this, say they've protected the NHS throughout this crisis and also, you know, just spend an absolute ton of money on the NHS afterwards, potentially even raise taxes and say we're raising taxes with a Conservative Party, raising taxes to save the NHS. Um, you know, that that could be that could really help them, um, you know, mitigate against one of their biggest weaknesses. In the shorter term, I think the main thing is that they need to frame the changes to the lockdown as going slowly. They, you know, the public wants it to be a a, a slow return back to normal. And when you talk about individual policies, they think they're at least slow, but there's a package because it's the way it's been sold. The public think it's going too fast. So they need the messaging to be, this is a slow change. Look, we're doing it very slowly. We're doing it calmly and not that let that get out of hand with tabloid newspapers splashing on the fact that, you know, it's all, it's going to be a great Monday where you can all go out to the park again. It's got to be perceived as a, a, as a slow and gradual return to normal. The problem he's got is the unity with the party as well as, you know, he's thinking about the, the party as well as the voter. 
And so marrying those two together is very tricky. Basically, is to turn around to the party and go, look, guys, you've got a point of view, which almost nobody in the general public actually holds. What, you know, 9, 10% of the public think that lockdown is being eased too slowly at the moment. And yet it seems to be a fair chunk of the Conservative Party that does think that. I suppose on the the broader point of the NHS and that sort of thing, that the wider public might want more money on the NHS. Many of those red wall Tories will recognise that as being an issue. But the sort of Tory MPs who still get on the news, uh, you're Ian Duncan-Smiths and John Redwoods, they're the ones who are going to balk at the idea of, um, uh, you know, tax rises, perhaps. But maybe you're right. Maybe Boris Johnson just needs to basically tell them to bugger off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could yes. probably you could probably scare Ian Duncan-Smith quite easily now by pointing out how easy it would be for him to lose his seat unless the Conservatives can do well at the next election and therefore proving that these policies are popular may be able to, to, to bring him back in line. I don't think Ian Duncan-Smith has ever, ever lowered himself to try to be popular with the public. <laughs> um, I, unfortunately, if I he has, that... it hasn't worked. <laughs> <laughs> and even the Tory party ended up, um, ended up coming to that view in the end. I think that's all we've got time for uh, on this episode do subscribe to the podcast and post a review on itunes if you can because uh, the last few reviews on itunes frankly have not been very nice uh, you can also stay up to date with the news on the launch of times radio by following on twitter or instagram for now my huge thanks to deborah to chris and to james for me matt Chorley, it's goodbye this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.